How's it going? I'm Coco. And this is Mike. And this is Rock and Vino, the podcast where we talk about wine and music and how the two go so well together. Find past episodes across the web. Tune in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, rockandvino.com. Of course, on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Rock and Vino. Like and subscribe, and then you get the new episodes every Tuesday, and you don't have to find them. It's a lot easier and, and better that way. <laughs> exactly. And uh, yeah, we're again mixing the worlds of wine and music this week. Uh, with uh, we're going going to West County in Sonoma County to uh, out to Sheldon Wines and, and Dylan Sheldon here with us. Hey guys, thanks yeah. for having hey, me. Thanks for coming thanks in. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, it's been a fun couple of weeks, hasn't it? <laughs> I bet. <laughs> did you canoe in or? You know, the water finally went down. We did have the canoe um, in the living room. Stage, oh wow! Stage just in case. Out of the garage. Um, oh my goodness! And uh, the water came up to the front step of our house, so literally we're four inches um, from employing the uh, the canoe. We were going to go pick up wow. some friends who were stranded on the other side of town. Jeez! And, um, it's you know it's not just a summer recreation. Canoes are a good form of transport. In <laughs> yes, if you need it. Yeah. Yeah, and we did. No, yeah. for people out of the area who may have you, may have just seen it. Uh, West County, Sebastopol, Forestville area here, uh, prone to flooding, and with the storms uh, a couple of weeks back, just saw some almost record flooding out there, and uh, yeah, yeah, it was it forty-six was, feet, I think. Yeah, forty-six and a half feet on the crest. Um, so to put it in context, you know, the water at Hacienda Bridge um, or in, in Guerneville there, we're like thirty-two feet is at flood stage. In the summer, as people are paddling around and enjoying the river, it's about six, six and a half feet. So when you look at it and you're looking at, you know, the Russian River at 32 feet, it looks like a monster. Mm-hmm. And at 46 feet, um, it, it's kind of hard to describe, really. Um, but when you see, like, power lines getting drugged through water and the water's, you know, a foot and a half underneath the footbridge that normally, if you jumped off of, um, <laughs> could be quite dangerous for yeah. how far of a fall it is. Um, so that part was, was kind of fun um, <laughs> for... <laughs> For those of us with flood insurance, I guess. Um, but yeah, it's, it's it's pretty shocking. Oh, definitely. You know, I guess this is the, about the highest it's come up, most destructive since 1986. So we've been around and, and, and seen a few of them here. But, um, you know, it's pretty tragic going into town, all those low-lying houses. Oh, um, yeah. You know, I, I think a lot of them do have insurance, which is required being that close to the, to the flood zone. But... Um, let's say there's going to be a lot of uh, new drywall and carpet and flooring going mm-hmm. in here for the summer. Now, I know a lot of people in that area sort of are in that mindset where they're, oh, it's flooding and they're prepared for it. Was there, did you notice with people, like, where there was a point where they went, oh, this seems worse? You know, I, I didn't really get that. What I did get, which, you know, it's it's eerily reminiscent of how people responded during the Tubbs fire. Mm. Everybody, as soon as we kind of saw it coming up, Everyone was up. Um, you're texting, communicating with people. You know, we're out at three in the morning, checking the creeks, checking the flood level. And as soon as it started going sideways, it's like everyone just kind of knew what to do as far as going into action. And then, okay, I know my friends are down here and they have a pool. We've got to sandbag it and cover it. Um, you know, there's a drainage that's plugged here. Let's get a shovel and go open it up. And then once it was up, you're just checking with your friends and making sure everyone's, you know, high and dry. And then who needs to get rescued and who needs a bottle of wine and who's running (laughs) out of cheese and what liquor store is still open. And, you know, and from that point, as soon as we could get out and about, I I really felt like the spirits are pretty high. I mean, people are like, my house is four feet underwater, but I've got my dog and it's in a canoe. We're just checking out the town. (laughs) 
And, um, you know, with cleanup, it, as soon as we could, everyone just grabbed shovels and started digging mud out and washing out, um, you know, sidewalks and businesses. And, you know, I'm on a, a cleanup crew of 12 people and I only know two of them and everyone's mm-hmm. just smiling and having a good time. Just wow. jumped, I mean, as soon as they could, just jumped right in and started helping out anyone that needed help. And that's a really cool thing about Sonoma County. Yeah, it's great to see the community come together in these times that we've had recently, unfortunately. But it is nice to see the um, just the community. Yeah, just be exactly yeah. that, you know, be and together. You, you know, West County is, is its own kind of, you know, microcosm. And I've always <laughs> I've always said this to visitors. I feel like it's it's like the pure experiment of the American puzzle, you know, the melting pot where we have so many different people of ethnicity, of background, of orientation. And you're like, why does it work here? Why isn't there, there, there much more conflict? Because we have so many different people mm-hmm. um, that historically and throughout the country maybe don't see eye to eye. And I've always kind of had this theory, well, like when the river comes up, it doesn't matter how the guy next to you votes or who he dates or who he marries or what he prays to. Um, if he's got a canoe, he's your buddy. And mm-hmm. we all kind of have that common enemy, which is the natural disaster around here. And so we all just kind of team up when it needs to happen. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. Now, for a little bit of context, the, the waters got so high that some of the cities were basically islands. I think Guerneville was an island. Yeah, we were, yeah. An, we were an island. Uh, Rio Nido was an island. Uh, Mono Rio was an island. That's and, um, and so we, you know, I, I think we're all pretty prone to going feral out there anyway so like i think we were like a day away from sharpening sticks and putting on war paint it was really it was lord of the flies because we got down to like our last two bottles of wine in the house and beyond that point like it, it is straight up lord of the flies that's trouble yeah it last was, two bottles of wine i don't was, know we, there would be viking viking dragon boats in, yeah. in the fife creek for sure yeah now the the going to the the sheldon wine story yeah uh how, I know it's pretty. It, the story of how that all came about is—it's pretty a crazy story. You want to talk a little bit about how that all started? You, you know, it seemed like a sane endeavor at the time, which was sell everything you own, buy mm-hmm. a one-way ticket to travel around the world, um, propose uh, marriage to a girl who I had had a first kiss with five weeks earlier. Oh wow! And we dropped everything, sold everything, and and just headed west. Um, and so we, we made wine together in New Zealand, got married at the end of Vintage, uh, worked our way through, I mean, just kept heading west, Australia, um, you know, Bali into Greece and then back into France eventually and uh, did a bit of work there. I was supposed to take an assistant winemaking position in northern Spain and uh, we were uh, pretty much maxing out our credit cards, spent all of our cash and we were in a, a little outside, you know, wine bar in, in Avignon. And I was like, well, I'm supposed to go to Spain next week and start this job. And then Toby's like, well, why don't we just go home and start a winery instead? I'm like, well, we don't have a job. We don't have a car. We don't have fruit sources. We don't have a winery. And she's like, ah, we'll figure it out. We literally had $20 to our name and about $20,000 in credit card debt. Wow. And we hopped on a plane on September 10th and flew back to the States to start a winery. And within a day or two... Um, we had jobs and a beater car and ended up making wine at an abandoned winery in exchange to be able to do our own things there and kind of keep the upkeep going. And we lived on an inflatable mattress in the lab upstairs at the winery mm-hmm. and bootstrapped by working two restaurant jobs um, to, to launch the brand back in 03. Wow. wow. 
And it seemed like a perfectly normal thing to do at the time. <laughs> and I think we, you know, that's the, the beauty of being really young and ambitious is you develop a skill set. And we had developed a skill set of how to make wine. Um, but we didn't know the first thing about the wine business outside of being, you know, a sommelier and being a wine buyer and seeing that aspect of it. But all the other aspect, we would have probably been rightfully paralyzed by fear had we known how hard <laughs> the industry was. Mm -hmm. And we were just like, hey, we're just going to make something really special and beautiful and something that really hasn't been done here before in a style that we were, you know, gunning for. Wow. Sounds like you guys have a lot of passion, you know, it's yeah. like you need to have passion for, you know, we figured out early on. Um, and, and I think this is a good thing. Um, uh, two very important lessons in life, um, that I would love to share with you both. <laughs> One of them, um, is that you should never ever, um, seek out someone in your life who isn't crazy. Mm -hmm. You really need to focus on, um, finding someone who's the same kind of crazy as mm -hmm. you. And at that point you become totally, you know, unstoppable. And the other <laughs> is really that there is nothing more dangerous in this life than accepting mediocrity. And mm -hmm. the, you know, the, the trip you don't take, the chance you don't take is a thing that will haunt you forever. And so really just to jump recklessly head first into the vortex and then the universe generally conspires to help you. Mm -hmm. And if not, you're there with the same crazy person as you and having a generally good time doing it. <laughs> when did you initially find winemaking in New Zealand? Was that um, sort of where you learned the craft? Um, well, it started a little bit earlier than that. It started on the streets of Modesto one summer um, when other kids were making lemonade stands. And I was about seven years old and we didn't have a lemon tree, and I, I very much enjoyed grapes. So I uh, pedaled my bicycle around with a couple of like bags on the handlebars, and I cut green grapes down and purple grapes down, and I crushed them and strained them through a colander, and I set up a stand selling Burgundy and Chablis for 25 cents a glass. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. On the streets awesome. of Modesto as a child, my parents wow. didn't drink wine, and they were baffled. <laughs> uh, but I remember going to the like convenience store to get the proper spelling, and I knew that Chablis was a white wine and mm -hmm. Burgundy, you know, was a red wine <laughs> and uh you know had it left it out long enough in the sun like it really would have fermented and that would have been like the coolest second grade block party ever absolutely <laughs> um but no I, I always wanted to be a chef my whole life i was drawn to to smell and taste and so uh you know i got in into restaurants at 15 i got around my first wine program at 18 and took that over right after so i was years before i was old enough to drink i was actually doing the wine buying and ordering and pairing Oh, wow. Um, so uh, I knew that something down that road was calling me and then kind of met good winemakers and helped them out here and there. And then I just got wholly consumed by that passion. <laughs> and the, did the two of you, you and your wife, meet in Sonoma County or? No, we actually met. Um, I had come back from my first overseas vintage. I was making wine in Australia, mm. in Western Australia, and uh, got a call uh, to come back and open this wine bar uh, attached to a wine shop and teach wine classes for UC Santa Cruz. So I came back, opened that, and she was a geologist by trade out of Boise, Idaho, hmm. who happened to be working uh, for the weekend with a private jet company. It's a really strange story. Mm -hmm. um, and anyway, she came into my bar, and I thought, this girl's got to be like 19 years old. And I'm like, she's way underage. <laughs> and so now that the statute of limitations is up, and I can totally admit the fact that I served someone who I thought at the time was a minor, um, <laughs> I didn't see her for a while. And it turns out she would, she'd taken off 
to celebrate her 30th birthday. So I was oh, wow. off on her age by a good 11 or so years. Um, so we met there. Um, I was heading back overseas to to work a vintage, and I got uh, picked up uh, from a winery in New Zealand. And she was like, hey, I was thinking about doing the same thing. So I asked them if they needed another intern. So at that point, we were just friends, not dating or anything, and just decided to head off to New Zealand to make wine. And awesome. after working cold, wet, tired, and hungry uh, for three months, we got married at the end of vintage. Wow. And that is, uh, if you can travel and survive those conditions with someone, <laughs> keep them. <laughs> Very nice. Um, go ahead. Oh, and what, um, what are the wines that you're making now? What, uh, what's, what are you working on? What's exciting right yeah, now? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and this is the fun thing is, you know, at this point, I just finished my 21st vintage in production. You know, so when you start off, um, it's much like being a musician. It's like you've 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 mentored, you've had these teachers, and your first early years. I think they reflect a lot of the schooling that you got from your mentors, and so your wines kind of are modeled after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to me, you know, about seven years in or so, each year you kind of take little experiments and branch out. But it was around seven years where I feel like I really found my voice and departed from what I would say more or less traditional varietals and approaches. Um, so this year, for example, we're working with uh, two different, you know, single vineyard Grenaches. We're doing uh, Carignan, doing a carbonic Syrah Viognier co-ferment. Um, we've got some Frappato grafted on that we're putting into a blend with some Old Vine Petite Syrah. Um, I mentioned Sangiovese. We're doing um, a Champagne Method Brut Rosé of Tempranillo. Yeah. Uh, Graciano, which is a really rare Spanish varietal. Um, so yeah, a lot of fun things. Um, planted a couple of new experimental vineyards that may be the first time these varietals have been ever planted together in the world anywhere. And some of the first times these grapes will be made into wine in this country. So Saparavi, which is a red-juiced grape from the Republic of Georgia. Mm. Um, Petite Mansang from the Gironson in the south of France. Um, just some really geeky things that we're having a lot of fun with. That's exciting. It, it is. Instead of just doing like, you know, a thousand cases of one thing, we're doing a bunch of one and two barrel production. So, you know, rather than the top 40 hits, we're on the Frank Zappa trip right now. <laughs> <laughs> I like the, the connection you made, uh, sort of the same mindset as being a musician. And you're also a musician. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny that I, I almost kind of, I find so much similarity to it. And when I was, you know, playing music um, professionally, uh, you know, we're gigging a lot, but I was also a sessions player, so I did a lot of studio work. Mm. Um, as a bass player, you find that you can you can work in a lot of different genre. Um, so one day I might be doing gothic industrial death metal, the next day would be polka, the day after that would be standard jazz, wow. then I might be working on a car commercial. Um, <laughs> wow. And it was fun for a while, but I, I find like with anything um, that you love as, say, a hobby or, or a passion, if it becomes too commercialized, it does kill it for you. And mm-hmm. I think... Um, the lessons I learned early on being a musician and then being, you know, like I say, a studio and sessions player, um, that it really did start to become a job and it, it, it kind of dulled that luster of, of how exciting music was. Um, and in winemaking, I, I, I suppose I, I got close to that and then needed to reinvent. And that's the part where I decided I just didn't give a fuck about what people thought about my wines anymore and I was going to make the best thing that I thought I could make. Um, but there's such a crossover between the two, you know, when in my playing days, we'd be working on a riff and I'd be like, I think it needs more purple, you know, or there's, it needs to be more bread here. And it's, 
you know, the, the drummer understood exactly what I was talking about, but everyone else, you know, didn't understand that synesthetic effect um, mm-hmm. of where tonality has color and smell and taste. And when I'm, I'm working in the cellar, a lot of times, you know, we, we often talk about a wine in its parts musically. And mm-hmm. like this has this like brightly struck cello string to it. And this has this gravelly grinding bass to it. And you're always trying to create, I think, a wine in a harmony. Mm-hmm. And you're trying to layer all of this nuance and to build a song. Because at the end of the day, music is storytelling. And it's a reflection through the lens of your life experience. And so music was always about, you know, burying your soul. And whether that's instrumentally or vocally and lyrically, those are, you know, it's, it's all at the same root. And winemaking to me has always been storytelling. You're looking at this grape and this soil and this vintage and what is the key, you know, driving line behind this? What is the, the inherent drama and beauty in this thing? And so at the end of the day, you're, you're just using a different medium. But I think the crossover is, is so clear and obvious and delicious if you pull it off. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> now, what's uh, when you're trying to find these experimental grape or experimental plantings you're doing? What's kind of the process in finding what's right? You know, how, how do you know when you've reached what its final form is going to be? God, I, you know, I think to, to answer that in two ways, um, from the developmental side. You're, it's almost like if you're writing the narrative of how to create a great musician, it's like you have to give them enough opportunity, but enough challenges. Mm-hmm. And I think vineyards, like they need enough opportunity to survive, but they have to have the challenge. It's got to be a steep hillside. You're hopefully looking for something with like limestone, um, you know, warm enough to just get things right, but not so much that you're baking off all the aromatics. Um, you know, I, I think that's what we look for in vineyard sites, things that are right on the fringe of being successful. Um, and then as far as the wine, it, you know, it's funny when, when you really dial in something um, in the cellar, in the bottle, we're working on blends and we're fine tuning something. I can get my first year intern who's just kind of in the last year or two discovered wine. I can get a 30 year veteran of winemaking. I can get a master sommelier and I can get a guy who just makes beer across the street. And if I sit him down at the table and I put the right blend together, the one that I know hits all the notes, everyone, regardless of their background and experience, they're all gonna feel it the same way. And it's just like tuning a guitar. Like you can be a virtuoso, you can just like sing in the shower. And if you hear a band play perfectly in key and in harmony together, Mm -hmm. it just, it resonates and you don't know necessarily why, but if it's off, you know it's off. It's like putting a shirt on backwards, you know. It's like <laughs> mm-hmm. you immediately go, yep, there's something wrong with that. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, it's a lot of fun because, you know, I think that the more you get into it, you look at what is the best possible ingredient. And so really we're trying to build that wine from rootstock and, you know, varietal and clonal makeup and, and how it's farmed and trellised and all that. And then if you do all of those parts right, then it comes together pretty clearly in the cellar but you taste it and it excites you and and more than anything you know it's going to strike some part of your memory and you know that's in storytelling it's how you're connecting to people Mm -hmm. and you put it in the glass and you smell it and it reminds you of walking through a field of wildflowers when you were six years old and there's very few things that can evoke that kind of powerful memory but 
you know, music. I mean, I'm sure there's songs you hear and then you're just like, oh my God, it's the seventh grade and it was that dance and that one Absolutely. person, <laughs> you know. And it's like, I mean, any of us listen to like the Beastie Boys License to Ill and you know exactly where you were the first time you heard the Violent Femmes. Mm-hmm. Like it just puts you back to that house party in the eighth grade or, you know, depending on your age, it may be different. <laughs> <laughs> Now, who um, on the music side? Uh, what what artists influenced you, or did you did you have a passion for, or uh, sort of helped pave yeah. your way there? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, as a as a bassist, that means basically that I wanted to be a drummer, and my parents were like, "Oh hell no!" <laughs> and then they kind of sold me on the idea. Well, it's still like the rhythm instrument, you know. So my first instrument ever was was piano. Growing up as a kid, mm. and then really wanted to play drums for. The obvious reasons is you want, as a 10-year-old kid, you want, you know, makes sense. Uh, but then I got into the bass, I think, at about 13. And, you know, at that point, you know, I'll, I'll date myself at 13, you know, it's the mid-80s. And what was happening at that time um, in punk rock was really exciting. Mm-hmm. And so that that was really grabbing me. And, you know, a minor threat coming out and bad brains and things of that nature. I mean, I grew up... Um, as a product of the 60s and 70s. So, I mean, named after Bob Dylan, for God's sake. So, obviously, <laughs> growing up, I, I didn't have a babysitter. I had a record player, and it was mm. the Beatles' White Album, and it was Frank Zappa, and it was, you know, Led Zeppelin, and a lot of Cream, and, and Santana. So, that was kind of my like, growing up music. But when I kind of found my own thing, it was it was deep into punk, punk for a, a long time. And then, um, in our band in high school, you know, playing bass through a distortion pedal, of course, and there was one weekend um, where I was experimenting with a lot of LSD and the batteries in my bass pedal, my distortion pedal died. And for whatever reason, I had this uh, James Brown cassette. It was like the 20 greatest hits of all time, James Brown. And I think I spent the entire weekend and I just played every bass line with um, just palm mute and a little bit of fuzz on it. And I, yeah, I discovered the pocket and as a bass player, you know, um, that was a, a weird thing. I think I kept it quiet from the rest of the guys in the band for a long time because <laughs> you don't like, if you're all into, you know, you know, black dreadlocks and leather jackets and, you know, um, to, to admit to having this fascination with Motown was <laughs> um, not so cool at the time. But yeah, that, that definitely warped me in a, in a good way, I think. Very nice. Now, the uh, availability of the wines, if people want to check them out, uh, mostly in restaurant stores, tasting rooms, where where do people go for that? You know, with the second generation of of where we're taking the business, almost everything we do really just kind of goes through um, through our online site and and then inherently through the wine club. Um, We sell a little bit of wine out of state um, and um, a little bit of restaurant and retail. Um, But... By and large, um, I like the business side is to make a lot of wine for a lot of other people. So I run a custom crush here in, in Coffee Park. I make wine mm. for about a dozen different labels. I have a second label called Avale that we launched two years ago, um, and that's widely distributed. For my own stuff, um, it's like you kind of have to seek us out and, and come find us. I mean, I'm in, at the winery six days a week, generally in Santa Rosa, so you just have to track me down, shoot me an email. <laughs> And, and combined taste. But almost everything I do now is one or two barrel productions. Wow. I mean, and, that's pretty much it. And there's no tasting room? 
Well, we do have a tasting room at the facility that is um, is just kind of like a by appointment, mm-hmm. and um, people just give me a call, and I'm like I say that I'm there every day. You can call me at nine and have an eleven o'clock appointment <laughs> nice. nine times out of ten. Yeah. It's now, in doing some of the custom crush, is there a relation to almost being like a studio musician with that, where you're trying to find the balance for what <laughs> the other person's looking for? Are there any parallels? In oh that, no, in it's that? it's one hundred percent. You know, and that's the fun thing is is you know we all like dressing up on Halloween, <laughs> and while I maybe don't want to for myself make you know big Napa cabs and it's maybe not the thing that I reach for to drink on occasion it's still fun to dress up Mm -hmm. and so when you put on that hat you're like ah monster wines and (laughs) you know it's absolutely and at the end of the day I think at this point in my career you know I don't need to put my stamp on any of their wines I'm going to make them really sound and and you know with with precision but I want to hear what they're they're looking for Mm-hmm. And as a sessions player and you're stepping into a polka group, you know, I'm not, I don't need you to know that I'm a huge fan of the Misfits. Um, <laughs> I just, I'm going to play exactly what makes your vision happen. And so that's a lot of fun. And, and that I still have all of my own creative outlet on the other side uh, keeps me whole and sane and, and relatively content. <laughs> so what are, what would be your perfect night of your perfect go-to wine and music pairing? Oh God, you know, perfect wine, tell you the truth, like uh, out of all the the cult wines you can have in the world, like just stepping into a little trattoria um, off an alley in in Rome and having Vina di Tivola in its proper setting with like gorgonzola gnocchi, some olives on the side and some like just nondescript Valpolicella. There's something that is so absolutely... um, perfect about it it's like they've been developing this culture for 2,000 3,000 years Mm -hmm. and when you have something like that it's it's just perfect and and to the same point to me like um walking down Frenchman in in New Orleans at you know two o'clock in the morning and you turn the corner and there's a bunch of like 15 to 17 year old kids in like white t-shirts and and baggy shorts and flip-flops with a cardboard box out for tips just tearing it down um you know funk soul based jazz like those are kind of perfect moments because they're organic and that they're they're born from a place of you live here this is our birthright mm-hmm. um, and whether it's on the streets of Galway or it's in the streets of New Orleans um, or just you know things that spring up organically are fantastic mm-hmm. and I mean that's not to say that there aren't you know bottles of 85 LaSalle champagne that are resonating still in my cellular structure and nights of seeing, you know, Modesky, Martin and Wood um, at, at, you know, the Warfield. They came out after this amazing set. And this is one of the, the most beautiful shows of power I've ever seen. And I've taken that analogy into my winemaking and that it's finesse Trump strength every single time. Mm. And it's like this place was packed and just everyone was sweaty and panting and you know is so full of energy and they come out on stage they unplug all of their instruments mm. and you have this relatively young audience who've all lost their minds on various substances to this incredible you know outside jazz funk music and everyone's holding their breath you know and and Chris Woods playing on stand up bass and and Billy's got a little you know handheld drum and John's playing a melodica and no one's breathing 
and they, they play this unplugged encore. Because, you know, you think of the encores and they come up and they just blow the roof off it. Mm-hmm. And they came out and they just went, we're going to do this thing that is so beautiful and quiet and delicate and perfect that you're going to hold your breath. And I, I just took that away and it's like, that is the most powerful encore I've ever seen. Wow. Um, and and took that to heart. And so, you know, like you cross again over into winemaking and you look at something as, you look at like a, uh, a wine writer, a lot of times we refer to as Enoporn because it's just gushing and spraying and this explosion of God, God, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> right. And it, and it reads just so bombastically. And, and I think if you get someone whose head isn't blown back by this explosion of ripe fruit and oak notes, um, but is hanging at the edge of the glass going, what is that subtle thing that reminds me of something my grandmother made when I was six? Mm. Like that is the real poetry and that is the real power of wine and, and music um, is to make people want to come back for more and hang on that last note. Now, you guys have had, I mean, even from the beginning, so much ambition with um, things you've been working on. Is there, as a winemaker, a goal that you think that's something I want to do still. Yeah, you know, I, I think, and again, to, to keep on point with with the, the topic here, um, as a musician, I always looked at jazz, you know, coming out from blues and rock and funk and punk rock and, and, and those disciplines, um, as jazz is sort of being a place you get to eventually once you've built a foundation and proficiency, but it was kind of scary. Um, it was like, wow, one day maybe I'll be good enough to play along with that or with them. And to me, champagne production. Um, mm. And while, of course, we're talking about sparkling wine here, but the history, the skill of blending, what they're working with, um, you know, you add carbonation to something, it's a magnifying glass. So any flaw or fault, you're not hiding, you know, I mean, we look at beer, um, you can hide a lot of flaws behind hops mm-hmm. and, and, you know, smoky malt. But when you're, when you're talking about um, zero dosage, traditional champagne method sparkling wines um, I feel like that is the free solo of El Capitan I feel like that's the place where you're you're working without a net and that if you make a harvest decision um, that is one day off you've missed your mark if you uh, make a press cut that's 0.5 bar you know um, off pressure from ideal um, if your fermentation is is slightly off for whatever reason um, if you're secondary in bottle, if you miss a mark by the smallest margin, you're done. Mm. Um, and, and to me, you know, I was in for, you know, 10 years in production before I started dabbling on the side with experimental lots of sparkling. And it wasn't until 2015 um, that we decided to, to tackle our first commercial um, sparkling project. And we're doing it with a, a, an incredibly non-traditional varietal in Tempranillo that historically has never been used for a sparkling wine. Um, that comes from this little one-acre volcanic hillside up off of, you know, Mark West Springs and, mm-hmm. and that Fountain Grove AVA. Um, and, and to me, that is, that right now is a thing that has me scared and excited every year. Nice. Um, and you approach it with respect, and, and then you're just giddy if you feel like you nailed it. Yeah. That's amazing. And, and so if people want to... Um get a taste of this they just will hit you up in in your tasting room or your custom crush facility is located where we're right in coffee park okay yeah so you can go on to sheldonwines.com um it has um both uh toby my wife 
uh, her contact information, my contact information. You can send us an email. I think my phone number is even listed there. You can shoot me a text. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, we're right across from Moonlight Brewing Company. So we have the best beer neighbors in the county. Nice. Uh, just a hop, hop, skip and a jump across from us. Awesome. Oh, it looks like you guys just went to a show. Yeah, we um, we had an amazing time at the Burbank Center on Thursday. Uh, the Wood Brothers uh, were in town, um, and Carsey Blanton, who's fantastic. Um, uh, we I've got to see her uh, twice on previous tours with them. Um, and normally they play the the Mystic Theater, which is a great venue in Petaluma. Yeah. And I was really excited. You know, they their last album came out. They were nominated for a Grammy. Um, they're playing larger and larger venues. Um, and to see, you know, the Burbank Center packed out um, for them was just fantastic. It was an amazing show. Um, you know, they're very Americana, um, kind of, you know, blues oriented. But Chris, with all of his jazz background, you know, to come out with a, you know, double bass on, on bow and play these amazing classical pieces that, that bend into this total outside jazz and then into this like blues Americana riff, it, it was just um, it was soundscapes. It was fantastic. It was a it was a great time. It was the first time I've ever seen a show like that, seated. Yeah, um, I know. And, and I was wondering like how how you have this energetic group yeah. playing to a seated audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think they were a little confused initially, um, but by the end, you know, there are people just dancing in the aisles, and there was great energy. So once they get some wine in them, <laughs> yeah, or just some like, music. You know, you know the, the interplay. You you as a musician, I've been there on stage. You know, it's like you you give what you get mm-hmm. um and you know they're trying to warm up the audience and the audience is trying to warm up the band and it takes a little bit because mm-hmm. they don't know like can we stand up like are we gonna get are mm. the ushers gonna come get us what's, mm-hmm. what's happening here? <laughs> um, but it turned out it just it was a, yeah it was a fantastic night and i know awesome. they had two sold out shows at the um at the Fillmore after that so they oh, had, wow. and yeah and then they get to go home for a little at least a week i don't know those guys <laughs> work so hard that's amazing it is Sheldon Wines. So many exciting things sounds like on the way. SheldonWines.com. Find him down in Coffee Park. So many great things to check out. And uh, yeah, well, Dylan, thanks for taking the time to come in. Very yeah, interesting story. Crazy stuff. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. Definitely. Glad I could make it. <laughs>